morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that the words that we've just sung are true. It's well with our souls. We pray now that as we study your word that you would help us not only to understand it, but to see all of our lives in light of it. We confess to you, Lord, that while it is the case that our our souls are well because of what you have done through Christ to save us, much of what we see in our lives is not understandable to us. And in much of our lives, we do not see you working. Pray, Father, that this morning as we study your word, that we would not only come to trust that you are working, but in some sense, come to see you working in every moment of every day. We pray that as a result of this, Father, our faith would grow and our affection for the Lord Jesus would grow, that our faithfulness would grow, and we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, as you're finding your place there, let's stand again and we'll read the, the whole chapter. Esther chapter 2, please stand with me and we'll we'll begin reading in verse 1. After these things, when the king, when the anger of the king, Ahasuerus, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the young women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. 
And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. You may be seated. If I were to ask you the question, how has the Lord worked in your life? I'm guessing that you would point to some large marquee events. You might tell me about your conversion. Well, when I was, I was 20, someone came to me and shared with me that I, like all people, was born a sinner and because of my sin, I was separated from God and I then became convicted of all the evil things that I had done in rebellion against God. I was grieved that I was going to spend eternity separated from Him in hell. But then that same person shared with me this great news that God loved me he sent His Son, Jesus, to live righteously in my place and to die on the cross for my sins. He was then raised from the dead in order to give me life. And so I repented of my sin, I trusted in Jesus, and I've been following Him ever since. So you might point to, to your conversion as, as one of the ways that God has worked in your life. Or maybe you would tell me about an occasion or two where the Lord has used you to bring someone to Himself. Maybe you would point to an occasion or two where the Lord has used a major event to draw you closer to Himself. 
We tend to associate God's work with those large marquee events. But those events are few and far between. When we look at what characterizes most of our everyday lives, it just seems like a lot of random stuff, completely out of our control and mostly meaningless. In other words, if I were to ask you that same question, Tell me how God has worked in your life. I doubt that anyone would say anything like, well, until this morning we were having a really mild winter. I doubt that anybody would say anything like, well, the tires on my car, they're 45,000 mile tires. I've gotten 60,000 miles out of them. I doubt that anybody would say anything like, my dog ate and subsequently puked up about three-fourths of the bag of Rolos that I got for Christmas. I doubt anybody would say anything like that. Because we don't associate the stuff of everyday life with God's working. And yet, 99% of of our lives, 99.9% of our lives is made up of that kind of stuff. What we might think of as just circumstantial white noise. And because that's how we perceive of 99.9% of our lives, that is, that it's just circumstantial, meaningless, purposeless, white noise, we can feel distant from God. Longing for some kind of of usefulness to Him, some kind of involvement in His work, It, it would be so helpful to believe that He's doing something in between those marquee events. That is why Esther chapter 2 is so helpful. There are several marquee events recorded in the book of Esther. And the big one happens in chapter 7. That's when the big salvation takes place. But there are two things that had to be put in place in order for chapter 7 to happen. And those two things are Esther needed to be queen The second is that Mordecai needed to have ingratiated himself to the king by saving the king's life. Both of those things happen in chapter 2. Chapter 2 shows God making strategic placements to set the stage for that huge marquee event in chapter 7. But we might wonder, why not? then just give the bare bones information. If if you've got the ESV, those of you who have the ESV, look back at your Bibles and look at those section titles that the editors of the ESV have placed in in chapter 2. Those section titles, they give the whole thing away. Esther, chosen queen. Mordecai discovers a plot. Those are the strategic placements that were necessary for chapter 7 to happen. And strictly speaking, those titles, they're all you need to know to understand the rest of the story. So, so why not just condense chapter 2? Why not save a little bit of time and ink? Instead of all of chapter 2, why not just write something like, you know what, to make a long story short, there's this Jewish woman. She becomes queen. Her name is Esther. She's got a cousin named Mordecai. He saves the king's life. We would still have all the crucial information to move on with the story. Why not do that? Because there is something to learn from how God brought about those strategic placements. Under the umbrella of those two major strategic placements, we find what in the moment may have been regarded as a bunch of circumstantial white noise. And had we been living through it, 
we might have regarded many of those smaller events with thoughts like, wow, that was random, or that stinks, or oh, cool, or I wouldn't have done that. We would not have assigned any more significance to these things than that. But when you, when you pull back a little bit, you see that all of those little circumstances, that circumstantial white noise, they were indispensable pieces contributing to the larger strategic placements that God was doing in order to make chapter 7 possible. In other words, the larger strategic placements, they consisted of many smaller strategic placements. God's working in and through every detail of the story. We tend to only look at the big obvious events, those big obvious events, and we look at those things, we say, wow, that was a crucial thing that the Lord did, without considering all of the little events that led to those big events. Esther chapter 2 shows us that the 99.9% of what we can't make sense of at the time sets the stage for the 0.1% where God is obviously moving. And the point is that God is working 100% of the time. There is nothing random. There is nothing purposeless. There is nothing wasted. What we regard as random stuff He is causing as strategic placements, moving people, moving circumstances to set the stage to bring about our good and His glory. We've already read the whole chapter. I'm going to walk through it though very quickly to, to put some rungs on the ladder, so to speak. And then we're going to draw some details out of it to consider how the Lord is working in that 99.9%. You won't need your your notes for for just a few minutes. But if you want to look down at at your your Bible, just glance through verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 reports the the young men who attend the king suggesting that Ahasuerus replace Vashti by means of what we might think of as the Persian version of the bachelor. And Ahasuerus thinks, well, that's a fantastic idea. Then we move into verses 5-7. through We're introduced to these two central Jewish figures of the story, Esther and Mordecai, their cousins. Esther was orphaned as a child. Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. And in light of the fact that a beauty contest has just been announced, it's significant that we learn that Esther is very beautiful. We move on to verses 8-11. through It's revealed that Esther is one of those women chosen to go before the king. And like all the others, she's put into the the custody of Haggai, who has charge of of all of these women. He's one of the king's eunuchs. But she seems to be Haggai's favorite. And he gives her preferential treatment and all of these preparations being made for each of these young women to go before the king. And we're also told that Mordecai made it his custom to hang out right outside the court of, of the harem to keep tabs on how Esther was doing. Moving on to verses 12 through 14, it's detailed just how this beauty contest of sorts was conducted. Each woman would go go and be prepared with cosmetics and perfumes for a whole year before going into the king for one night. Each woman could also take in with her one thing to, to to the king, whatever she wanted. Perhaps it's some token to try to woo the king. Verse 15 tells us that when Esther's turn came, she took with her only what Haggai advised her to take. And the last sentence of that verse, verse 15, is 
is important. Now, Hester was, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verses 16 through 18 reveal Esther went in to the king. The king loved her. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the rest, and he made her queen. There was this great celebration in, honor, in her honor in all the provinces. And so now we have this essential strategic placement that has been accomplished. Esther is queen. She is now in position for chapter 7 to happen. We then glance through verses 19, 19 through 23. Those verses tell of Mordecai being in just the right place at just the right time to overhear two eunuchs plotting to kill Ahasuerus. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king on behalf of Mordecai, the plot is foiled and a note is made in the records of the king. Strategic placement number two accomplished. And now Mordecai is in position for chapter 7. Again, we could just say, along with the ESV section headings, Esther becomes queen and Mordecai discovers a plot. But we're given all this other detail. What if we were to look closely at all of that detail? What might we find about how God is working to bring about these big strategic placements? We would find at least four things. The first of those is in your notes. It is that God strategically uses the seemingly random. God strategically uses the seemingly random. You know, before this chapter even opens, back in chapter 1, we have Vashti being deposed What does that have to do with anything related to God's people? You know, conspicuously absent from from chapter 1 is any mention of God's people. There's nothing about Judah, Jerusalem, Jewish kings, nothing. What on earth does this story have to do with us? The original readers might have asked themselves. This random information seems to keep rolling right on into chapter 2. We hear about this beauty contest that's going to come up. But, But even that contest itself is random when we take a closer look at it. Who recommends a mechanism for replacing Vashti? It was not the wise men of chapter 1, which is what we would have expected. The wise men of chapter 1, remember their their spokesperson was Mamukin. He's the one that recommended that Vashti be canned. And, And what did he say there? He said, let the king give Vashti's royal position to another who is better than she. Now he likely did not have in mind someone more beautiful, but rather someone more agreeable. Someone more submissive, because that was the problem with Vashti. Vashti was beautiful, but obstinate. So what what does Mimukin have in mind? Somebody better than that. Not more beautiful, but somebody who is going to do what the king says. And so if the wise men had been the ones who just happened to be there, when when, when the king remembers, oh yeah, we need to replace Vashti, they would have come up with, with a different mechanism for replacing the queen, but it's the young men who just happened to be there at the right place at the right time when the king's anger abated and he remembers Vashti needs to be replaced. And so they suggest what you might expect young men to suggest. Let's make it a beauty contest. And you know, the more we see of Ahasuerus in this book, the more we realize just how random and arbitrary this is. Whoever has Ahasuerus' ear at any given moment, they're the ones that steer the kingdom. And when we realize this, we realize just just how 
seemingly of chance this whole thing is because it, it might as easily have been a powerlifting meet that could have been used to replace Vashti. It just depends on who's there at that moment because Ahasuerus is pliable with a capital P. It just happened to be the young men who were there at the right moment. It looks random, but the seemingly random beauty contest just happens to put Esther at a distinct advantage, which we'll discuss in a moment. Now, we have seemingly random stuff happening in our lives all the time, and it only seems random because we don't see what God sees. We don't know what God knows. He's moving in and through everything purposefully to accomplish His will. I have the great privilege of standing before you this morning and proclaiming God's Word. How did that come about? It may, may disappoint you, I don't know, but there was no burning bush experience that steered me down this course. The, the Lord did not audibly say to me, Go and preach! There, there was nothing like that. And if, if, I, if I really wanted to just trace, trace things back to one event to try to make sense of why I'm standing here this morning, it was just a random, out-of-nowhere comment that somebody made to me on Thanksgiving Day in 2005. This offhanded comment that somebody made to me, they didn't plan to make it to me. They said something that made me begin to think certain thoughts that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And those thoughts led me to being in certain locations where I would not have been otherwise. So that, domino, 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 you're hearing this message on this date in your life. You, you may have some seemingly random, random things, what you may regard as meaningless things going on in your life right now. Just circumstantial white noise. Could it be that the Lord is setting the stage to accomplish His work in you? Or maybe more significantly, setting the stage to use you to accomplish His work in someone else? The answer is yes, it is the case. He is moving everything. He uses the seemingly random strategically. Secondly, God strategically uses the morally questionable. He uses the morally questionable. A lot of interpreters just don't know what to do with Esther and Mordecai. I mean, do we, do we commend them? Do we condemn them? Because there are things that these two do in this book that the law of Moses would frown upon. Esther hides her Jewishness at Mordecai's behest. And there are a host of interpreters who say that's a big problem because the Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations. And Esther joins this harem of the king for what is going to be obviously an unwed one-night encounter. She's doing that with the prospect of possibly being then married to this uncircumcised Gentile. Both of those things, huge no-nos in the law. Huge. And, and we might say, well, she had no choice in the matter. She, she could have been killed. Well, do you think that she would receive any sympathy from Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel? They were posed with a very, very similar choice. Be unfaithful or die. And what did they choose? 
They would rather die than be unfaithful to the Lord. But this text is silent on the moral decisions made by Esther and Mordecai. In other narratives regarding David, Solomon, Daniel, Joseph, the text gives some indication about what we should think about their actions. But here, the morality of Esther's and Mordecai's actions do not seem to be a point of emphasis. In fact, the book only explicitly commends them. We have three times in this book that we are told of Esther that she obeys Mordecai. Even after she's queen, she obeys him just as she did when she was a young girl. That becomes a significant thing later on because she's going to do the right thing at the right moment to save God's people because she's obedient to Mordecai. And and the last verses of the book commend Mordecai by saying this, He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So there are hints that that they are to be commended and yet we see these ungodly things they're doing. Listen, this book of Esther is not intended to be a character sketch on Esther or Mordecai. We are not intended to to say, look, they did the right thing and that's why everything turned out well, or they did the wrong things and that's why everything turned out poorly. No, the text is conspicuously silent on what we know to be ungodly things in the situation. The morality of these central figures' actions is not discussed, and that in itself contributes to the point being made. And that point is that God uses all things, not only the morally commendable, but also the morally ambiguous, and the morally questionable, and even the morally indefensible to accomplish His ends. And that can be really helpful to us. How many of us have terrible mistakes in our past? Terrible sins in our past? How many of us have people for whom we're aching right now because they've made awful mistakes? How comforting is it to know that those things, rather than throwing off the plan of God, are accomplishing the plan of God? What a relief. Now, because we believe the Bible, we know that, that that in no way minimizes our sin. It in no way absolves us of our sin. But it is encouraging to know that the outworking of the mysterious providence of God includes our mistakes and our failures. It does not merely overcome them. You see, God's sovereignty, when we think of God's sovereignty, we're not merely saying that He is simply better at chess than we are. Do you understand what I mean by that? Many people conceive of the outworking of, of the sovereignty of God as a cosmic chess match. And so God has His will, and we have our will, and He's just better at it than we are. He always wins. And occasionally, we'll, we'll do something to throw off His plans, and, and for a minute, He's left scrambling, thinking, oh man, how am I going to get around that? Oh, I know. And he just he's better at it than we are. But that is dead wrong. Dead wrong. And if we want to continue with that, that chess analogy, we need to think of it this way. He's moving all the pieces, even the evil actions of morally responsible humans. Would love to say more about that. 
because I know it raises a lot of questions. Perhaps I'll put something on the blog this week. But listen, some, some people think, boy, I would, love, I would love to be used by the Lord, but I've just I've tied His hands. These are these decisions I've made. Or we, we look at the mistakes, the sins of others, and, and we wistfully think about their lives. Oh, what might have been. But listen, none of us, none of us would be as sharp a tool in the Lord's hands as we would be if it had not been for the failures of our past. Now, are we responsible for those mistakes? Absolutely. Were those choices sinful? Without a doubt. Did Jesus have to die to atone for those sins? Absolutely He did. But our incomprehensible God, our incomprehensible God strategically uses those things for our good and for His glory. And we may not know exactly how He does it, but the fact is that He does. And praise God for that. Nothing is wasted in the economy of God. Hallelujah. Third, God strategically uses the deeply painful. God uses the the deeply painful. If you look at verse 5, Mordecai is described as a Jew in Susa. A Jew in Susa. That phrase is tantamount to saying he was in exile. Then in verse 6, the next verse, the Hebrew text uses the word exile four times in quick succession to tell us more about Mordecai. My translation of it would be, he was descended from an exile among the exiles, exiled with Jeconiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar exiled. So how does the narrator want us to view Mordecai? Probably as an exile. It's probably he, he wants us to, to look at Mordecai through the lens of captivity, oppression, and pain. Of all the passages in the Old Testament with which Mordecai is likely to identify most strongly, it's, it's probably the latter half of Deuteronomy 28. He is a cursed slave in a foreign land. So he thinks of himself. And Esther has the same story, but on top of that, the narrator would have us to know that she suffered the loss of her parents. And again, this is a significant detail. How do we know that? Because he tells us this twice in one verse. Twice in the same verse, he tells us she's an orphan. She lost her parents. She lost her mother and her father. Now, Mordecai and Esther both, they, they, they have their, their, their own pains, and they likely, like many of us, had no idea what to do with that pain. They almost certainly lamented it, likely saw it as something that, that they had to overcome, not something at all useful. But consider this, their respective pain, perhaps, is what forged the closeness of their bond to one another. Mordecai needed someone to love. He needed something to ascribe meaning to. And Esther needed someone to raise her. She needed someone to care for her. And without that bond forged by pain, two significant problems would have arisen between chapter 2 and chapter 7 of the book of Esther. Esther likely 
would not have done the right thing and intervened for her people because Mordecai would not have been there to persuade her to do it. And second, Mordecai would not have been in the right place at the right time to overhear the plot against the king because he was in the right place at the right time because he loved Esther. It was his care for her that drew him to stay right outside the king's gate where he overheard that plot. See, their pain molded them into very specifically shaped tools that the Lord would use later on. What about the pain of being chosen for this beauty contest? You know, the the only blessing of of this contest is if you win. If you win, you're, you're queen. But second place, which is held by a nameless and faceless horde, is not a position to be envied. These young women, they're going to go into the king. They're going to spend a year preparing for it. They're going to go into the king, not for romance, but to satisfy his physical desires for one night of their life. The vast majority of them will never see him again. They will be his concubines. And sure, they'll be taken care of for the rest of their lives. They'll never have to worry about where the next meal is coming from, but they will never marry. They will never have children. Their lives, their entire lives will be about one night and likely it's a night that they do not want to remember. And this is going to be the plight of all of them save one. Only one becomes queen. And on the front end of that, Esther has no idea that that's going to be her. As far as as she knew, her whole life is going to be about a meaningless one night. Now, being chosen for that for that contest, may not exactly have been the Hunger Games, but neither was it Cinderella, and we ought not romanticize it. Perhaps not so painful, but more in the category of just terribly disappointing, Mordecai is not recognized for his favor to the king at the end of this chapter. Reminds me of Joseph interpreting a dream for the cupbearer in Genesis 40, and then is right away, forgotten. Perhaps Mordecai was thinking, you know, I do, I do this great thing for the king. Save his life. And there's no reward for it. Exile, orphanhood, abuse, pain, disappointment. Must have all seemed meaningless at the time. But in light of chapter 7 and beyond... Every bit is meaningful. Nothing is wasted. All of it is used by God to bring about good for His people. For some of you, your pain may be so fresh that the last thing you want to hear this morning is that God's going to use it for good. And I understand that. Let me just press a little bit to encourage you that you can trust the Lord. This body, this local body of Christ is is filled with people who have suffered deeply. Not in the exact same way that you have, but they've suffered deeply nonetheless. And the Lord has then later blessed them with the ability to see what He was doing in that pain. And now... They were able to say, praise God for that suffering. Because without it, this 
glorious thing would not have eventuated. And we could ask Joseph in Genesis, who was downtrodden for years in unimaginable ways, but who later was able to say, through my pain, God preserved the seed of the woman. Or we, we could ask the, the man born blind in, in John chapter 9, who on top of being born blind, endured an entire lifetime of people suspecting that his blindness was a punishment from God. But now he's perhaps the only person in history who's able to say, the first thing I ever saw was Jesus. You may not understand. You may not understand it now, and it may seem meaningless. The Scriptures would tell you this morning, it isn't. You can trust the Lord. For the believer in Jesus, what the world intends for evil, God intends for good. He strategically uses the deeply painful. And finally, God strategically uses the variously joyful. strategically uses the variously joyful. There are various blessings that come Esther's way that culminated in her strategic placement as queen. And first is that she was, she was beautiful. We've already seen how a random thing led to this con- contest being a beauty contest. We see how this random thing now is working together with a blessing that God gave Esther. There's one phrase for beauty, one Hebrew phrase for beauty in chapter 2 describing what the officials were looking for as they're gathering all these versions for the king. And though we don't see that same phrase in English in verse 7, it is the same Hebrew phrase, but it's used to describe Esther. And a second Hebrew phrase for beauty is used on top of it to describe Esther. And the point is, Esther is beautiful and then some. She, she is extraordinarily beautiful. She's a world-class beauty. And we are drawn to beauty. We, we desire to be beautiful. We admire. We envy the beautiful. This was a blessing that God gave to Esther and she had it all her life. And it ended up being an essential part of God's plan. Additionally, God God gave Esther favor with everyone who saw her. This this thing of winning favor calls our attention to other biblical narratives like that of, of Joseph and Daniel. God's intentionally omitted from explicit mention in this book of Esther but we are intended to understand that this gaining of favor is not, it's not just a random thing. It's not charisma on Esther's part. God gives favor because when we read about this kind of thing in other narratives in the Bible, what is happening? It is always God giving favor. God gave Joseph favor and therefore he ascended to the number two position in Egypt. And God gave Daniel favor and so he ascended to the position just underneath Darius who just happens to be Ahasuerus' son. And so the point is, hey, look, God is giving Esther favor. She is going to ascend to the position of queen. God is doing this. As a result of this favor that, that the Lord is giving her with everyone, she received preferential treatment from Haggai. He expedited her treatments. He gave her the best place in the house. He gave her good counsel about what to take with her into the king. Every advantage was being afforded her so that it was inevitable that she would become queen. 
And she did. She did. The king loved her more than all. And the Hebrew word here for loved is the big Hebrew word for love. It's, it's not simply that, uh, yeah, Ahasuerus, he kind of dug Esther. We're going to see later in this book, he loves Esther. Verse 18 indicates that her ascension to the crown was a blessing to everybody. It's a blessing to everybody. God uses various joys, different kinds of successes, wins, and blessings to accomplish His plans for us. Now, here's the ironic thing, though. For some of us, we find that harder to accept than that God uses the deeply painful to accomplish His will. Maybe you can identify with this. Whether it's the birth of a child, finding love, or, or, or getting some small raise, some of us tend to regard the Lord's blessings with suspicion. What do some of us start to think when God showers blessings on us? What do, what do we start to think? Oh, something bad must be about to happen. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us have thought that. Something bad must be about to happen. What a strange way to think of God. As if He just gives good things to to take them away or to set us up for suffering. You want a blessing? Here's a blessing. Yeah, just come a little closer. A blessing? Here's a blessing. And here's another one. Blessing? Blessing? Trial! Ha! Sucker! is Is that really the God that the Bible describes to us. What an odd thing. Could it be possible that when God gives good things, it's not to take them away and it's not to set us up for suffering, but to strategically place us to further His plan. The Bible does teach us, of course, that that we are going to suffer. In this life, you'll have trouble. Jesus is very honest about that. At the same time, Jesus also said this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And of course, we do not want to latch on to some kind of prosperity gospel, but neither do we want to be suspicious of God's kindness. Among God's strategic placements are joys and blessings. And perhaps rather than regarding His blessings with suspicion, we should rather praise Him for them and think, Wow, I can't wait to see how the Lord is going to use this to accomplish His good will for me and glory for Himself. One day, we may be able to look back at everything and make sense of it all. Maybe. We may be able to see how all the seemingly meaningless things contributed to to these big marquee events. We may be able to trace the 0.1% back to the 99.9%. Had this random thing not happened and had that morally questionable thing not happened and had that painful thing not happened and had that incredibly joyful thing not happened, then the stage would not have been set for God to do this great work or for God to do that great work. And, And perhaps we'll see. God was working through all of it. Maybe He'll allow us to see All of that, maybe He will. I'm inclined to think that He will. 
But even if we don't ever see everything with that kind of clarity, we can trust that God sees all and is working all. There is nothing meaningless. And more importantly, we don't need to know what the plan is or how He's accomplishing it. Imagine that in God's design to accomplish His great gospel mission throughout the church age and throughout the world. Imagine that as part of that great long-term plan, He has has a component, a smaller component of that plan, which entails just the 21st century in this country. And as part of, of that component, He has a smaller plan for a decade in a particular neighborhood in Liberty Township, Ohio. And as part of his plan for that neighborhood, his design is to plant a couple there who love Jesus and radiate gospel truth to all those who live around them. He's had that plan from eternity past. He has revealed that plan to no one. He's not even revealed that plan to that couple. And he doesn't need to because he's sovereign. He simply sets into motion a plethora of circumstances, experiences, and influences, pains and pleasures, failures and successes before they were born, in their childhoods, in their adolescences, in their young adulthoods, all kinds of things that led them inevitably to marry one another. And He grants them joy in that marriage. And He grants them pain in that marriage. He he grants them to make such a sinful mess of that marriage that only Jesus can rescue it. And through means both obvious and hidden, He does rescue it. And they love Him for it. And by His grace, they love one another for it. Perhaps through all, throughout all of that, He grants them flat tires, lost jobs. He gives them inexplicable promotions, forced relocations. All along the way, He brings people into their lives at certain times to teach them things by precept. He brings other people into their lives to teach them things both negatively and positively by example. He allows them to learn Christ the hard way and He allows them to learn Christ vicariously through the experiences of others. All these things lead them to greater and greater affection for and commitment to the Lord Jesus. And after many years of His seasoning them with all that pain and pleasure and failure and success, taking what to them was all perfectly random nonsense, taking all of that and using it to hone them into a very specifically shaped tool in His hand, He then plants them in that neighborhood. And what He has deftly prepared them to give is precisely what He has deftly prepared that neighborhood to receive. One day after about a year of reaching out, the younger couple next next door, they both repent and receive Jesus 
and this now older couple, they praise God that finally He is at work in their lives. Of course, He has left His fingerprints on every moment of every day. They have seen one marquee event, and behind it stood a billion strategic placements of providence. These things should shape our thinking, should shape our thinking in at least a couple of ways. The first is this, we may not understand the 99.9%, but we can trust He is at work, nothing is wasted. Secondly, at any moment, we may be on the threshold of a marquee event Whatever task He puts in front of us in that moment, we can know He has providentially prepared us for it in ways that we are not even aware of. We have only to trust and obey. Our great God causes all things, all things, to work together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Our great God, our sovereign, holy, wise, loving, saving Father, we worship you, we praise you, that you have loved us in such a way that you have left nothing to chance, and you have left nothing wasted, but for all those whom you have chosen to redeem and to bring into your glory. You've set into motion events that lead inevitably to that end. We praise you for this. We ask you, Father, for the grace to trust you with everything that we can't understand. With the 99.9%, Father, help us to, to believe that you're doing something. Help us not to regard any of it as, as, as meaningless or random or purposeless. Trust that you're working, love you for it, though we may never understand how. And please move us, Father, to worship, worship you. You are wise beyond our understanding. And you are loving beyond our understanding. along with Paul, Father, we pray that you would grant us to know the unknowable, to understand that which cannot be understood, that we would be, that we would be filled up with all the fullness of who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name.